Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're delighted to be joined today by Andrew Adonis. He is a former UK Secretary of State for Transport. He's a Labour member and a key proponent of a second referendum. Lord Adonis, thank you for joining Surveillance Live on the Green today. Look, it seems that we're almost in the midst of a constitutional crisis. What happens if MPs vote for a customs union? Does Theresa May have to choose between her party and the will of Parliament? Well, it is pandemonium here in Westminster at the moment. It may look calm behind us, but in fact, actually, behind that, uh, they, they, those inside those buildings uh, is more politicking and uh, more bitterness actually and political conflict than I've seen in my political lifetime and the reason for it is that two different things are going on both of which are causing huge stress to the British political system we have a government and a parliament which have completely fallen apart which has, has never happened in modern political history uh, and secondly we have a Brexit proposition that's imploding and the problem is that the Brexit proposition is still supported by the Prime Minister and still has this referendum result of three years ago. Now, where things are moving towards is a long extension of the negotiating period, this thing called Article 50, yep. the process by which we negotiate our withdrawal, that I reckon will be probably another right. year, and that will put the whole thing on hold while we sort it out. So, in fact, if you're sort of trying to make sense of all of the pandemonium going on, what is in fact happening is Brexit is being put on hold, but it's being put on hold in a very messy way. Right, but putting on hold for 12 months, I'm not sure what it changes, and in the meantime, they have to organise European elections, and they may also have to contribute to the EU budget, how palatable will that be? Well, uh, not palatable to Theresa May at all, which is the reason why she's struggling until the last. She's three times put her deal to a parliamentary vote, lost three times. She might well try a fourth time tomorrow or Wednesday, so she certainly doesn't find it palatable. But where is the parliamentary majority coming out? And we are a parliamentary democracy, so ultimately parliaments will, uh, will be what happens. Where the parliamentary majority is coming out is long extension, which if that means that we have to fight the European elections, so be it. We will, of course, for as long as we're in the European Union uh, contribute to the budget. We don't break the law as a country. And in that long extension, the issue will be resolved. I'm absolutely confident of that as a parliamentarian. How is it most likely to be resolved right. by, by, by a second referendum? It is wonderful to have you here today on too many counts. One of them, Lord Adonis, is your father was an immigrant, a waiter, and all the good that has occurred within your academic mm. career and your public service. Fine. But then the question is, where is your Labour Party? You are expert on Labour history. You are yeah. expert back to at least William Gladstone. Is Jeremy Corbyn abdicating his responsibilities for Labour? Well, again, there's a difference between the leader and, and the followers, as there is with, uh, with Theresa May. The Labour Party, as a party, is overwhelmingly pro-European. What are you going to do this week to we will vote. out your leader? Oh, we, we will vote. We don't, we don't actually need to, to, uh, uh, to, to move our leader now, because he has moved. We will vote tonight, in the, in the votes that are taking place in Parliament tonight, we, the Labour Party, will vote for a second referendum. Here's what I've learned in 24 and, and, and against a no-deal Brexit. So we've got to the right place. Here's what I've learned in 24 hours. Every cab driver in London roots for Arsenal. I figured that out. And the other thing I learned is they all are scared stiff 
of your Labour leader. Well, I, How do you change that? Well, I'm an Arsenal supporter too. And, uh, oh, I, 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 and tough loss to continue. Uh, no, they're a great team, Arsenal, and they're also Jeremy Corbyn's local team. They're Islington in North London. But so far as Jeremy himself is concerned, you need to separate out the person of Jeremy Corbyn, who of course is anathema to particularly small traders like cab drivers because he's on the far left. You need to separate that out from, from Labour's position on Brexit. Now, Jeremy Corbyn historically has been anti-European because the far left, the Marxist left in this country, regarded the European Union as a capitalist conspiracy. Yep. But the overwhelming majority of Labour members and Labour members of Parliament okay. are, are pro-European, and that is how we are now voting. In the next five days, how are you going to take the Labour Party from the Marxist worry over to public service if in a general election you actually win? Well, we're not going to have a general election because the one thing that both parties will agree on in the immediate future is that, is that they don't want an election given that uh, the political, uh, both parties are, are Jeremy so Corbyn wants a general election. Yeah, but it's not going to happen. There isn't going to be a majority okay. for general election. That, that would mean Conservative MPs being turkeys voting for Christmas, and, and they're not right. that stupid. Which, which could happen. <clears throat> it won't happen. We've had two motions of confidence so far, and the Conservative Party is held together with not a okay. single Conservative MP rebelling but, on either occasion. So that's fantasy land. Why, why would Parliament actually vote for a second referendum? What if we get a 52-48 remain? What if we get a 54-46 remain? Mm. It seems that that would be problematic. Mm. Do you then have a third vote just to square yeah. it off? The reason Parliament will vote for a referendum is from a combination of people like me who believe we should still stay in the European Union and that is actually the mature considered view of the British people and we need to test that and a large number of my colleagues for whom this is a lifeboat that we, we're paralysed, we cannot make decisions, Parliament and Government aren't at one so we need a referendum to, to break through the logjam. Now if there's an, uh, I actually believe that if there's a referendum rather like 1975 when we had a long period of debate leading to a referendum I think there'll be a decisive majority for staying in the European Union but it doesn't matter what the majority is. Provided we stay in, that is the end of Brexit, because no government is then going to proceed with Brexit. And the right. idea that we would have another but referendum... But Lord won't half the people feel cheated? They no. voted. They, they voted no. to leave. No, I do not believe that. I have, I'm, I'm an experienced politician. I've, I, I, I'm addressing Brexit meetings up and down the country at the moment. It's my big thing. It's very important to understand that most people who voted for Brexit were not voting about Europe. They were voting against profound discontent at the way this country is being governed at the moment austerity, the state of the public services, uh, real wages down on 10 years ago, the fact that their own okay. lives have got worse. That's the reason we, why the, the proportion who actually care passionately about Europe is tiny. It's very vocal. You can hear some of them behind you, the but same, it is tiny. We have the same debate in the United States about a Republican Party like the Whigs in 1842, pre-Gladstone, that has narrowed down and become a Republican Party of a few. Do you perceive the Tory party as the same way, where they've just become so narrow, evolving over the last 10 and 15 years? Well, they've become very narrow at the moment because they've become absolutely obsessed and overwhelmed by this European issue. Then why issue. can't Labour win decisively? I don't understand that. Uh, well, the, 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 we, we have issues on, on our own side, which, which you've identified. So at the moment, what we have is an uncompetitive political system, and that is, I'm afraid, part of the reason why we have Brexit. But our democracy is a great democracy, and what I think will happen if we stop Brexit is that both parties will move dramatically towards the centre. The Conservative Party, which is not historically an ideological party, they are not, if they lose a referendum now on the Brexit issue, they are not, as no. a party, going to obsess about Europe for much this, longer. This has been wonderful, Lord and Honest. Thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it.
getting up to speed on the FX market now, helping us do that. David Bloom, HSBC Global Head of FX Strategy. He joins us on the phone from London. David, always great to catch up with you. Your research dropped across my desk this morning. The currency outlook, the great pivot continues. Let's talk about that. Misreading the central bank pivot. How many people got that wrong in Q1, David? Well, I mean, the consensus basically argued that the Fed would pivot and the Fed would turn to neutral and that fiscal stimulus would come to an end and, and the dollar would drop. They were nearly right. What they didn't recognize is everyone else, uh, that when the U.S. gets a cold, the rest of the world gets pneumonia. It's always been thus. So we had the ECB pivoting, we had CAD, we had uh, Aussie, we had New Zealand now talking about rate cuts. So, yeah, the Fed, Fed turned. But the difference is all other things being equal, they would have been weak for the, bad for the dollar. But all other things are not equal. Everyone else pivoted as well. Many people have really struggled to get an appropriate framework to really frame this FX market, David. Have them do that for the next couple of quarters. What's the best way to look at things? Well, I think the question is, is the market cyclical, structural or political? And I'm afraid to say the market has become very, very political, uh, both cyclical and political. Is the central bank pivoting and what's going on with the politics? We look at the four currencies rallying today. They're all emerging market political currencies. It's risk on day. So that's South Africa rallying because of a pass by the rating agencies. Turkey, we've just had an election. Mexico, uh, we're talking about uh, all different things going on there. And sterling. So these are four currencies, are all, all these four emerging market type uh, political currencies all rallying. So it's a risk on day. And that's, that's, what, that's what's going on at the moment. The story of Q1, as you know, David, is that the US dollar is basically the high yielding currency in G10. The carry trades on, pick up the US dollar. Is that something that sticks? Was that a temporary phenomenon or a story for 2019? Well, it was a story fall of last year, and it hasn't stopped. I don't see why the story is changing. The world's reserve currency, the world's global superpower, is offering me the highest yields in the world. It's something beautiful. You don't often see this. I get paid to own dollars. It's fantastic. I don't have to buy a 10-year bond with 21 coupon payments with all the duration risk. I buy a one-year treasury. You know, 100% guaranteed by the U.S. taxpayer, I get 2.5%. Isn't that beautiful? I sleep like a baby every night. I'm sure you do, regardless, David. Um, looking at 2017, 2018, 2019, it seems to me that when the global economy is doing well, when global risk appetite is good, the dollar is weaker, and vice versa. So here we are in 2019. If global risk appetite improves, if the Chinese data is an indicator of the way this year is going to progress and materialize over the next nine months, doesn't that smell like a weaker dollar story? Why is that a stronger dollar story? Because it just ain't necessarily so. I mean, we've, I mean, 50.8 on China and everyone's getting excited. It's creaking into positive industrial territory. You know, what you forgot to mention is the down revision to the German one, 44.1. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, so um, if there's a full-blown recession, uh, recovery everywhere, I, I completely agree with you. But... Where is that from? Look at every central bank. They're pivoting towards dovishness. You were talking about the fiscal push in, in China, which is kind of working. So things are, are stabilizing, but a kind of world that's poodling along and stabilizing while I'm earning 2.5% on one-year money in the U.S., that plays into the dollar. If you're telling me there's a global recovery and central banks are raising rates and it's, 
it's, uh, you know, everything's going gang-ho uh, gang around the world, well, then obviously the dollar won't do well. But that ain't happening. Well, David, let's talk about what's happening this morning. I'll put up the consensus view and you can decide whether you're before, in front of it or behind it and what you think about it. The consensus view right now is that the Chinese data has improved and that's your leading indicator. That's been the source of the epicenter of global weakness. If we address that, everything else will come afterwards. Are you challenging that view, David? Yeah, but I mean, we're we talking about uh, two things here. So that is, as I said, the cyclical, and yeah, I agree with that. But then we've got the political as well, which is uh, the trade deal. So it's both the cyclical and political. Now, the question is, will growth be that strong that it'll propel everyone upwards? Or will China kind of stabilize and grow quite nicely, which I think it will. But that means you need to be picky in emerging markets. You've got to choose wisely. You can't just go in and buy anything you like. That's the point I'm making. So, David, final question for you if dollar strength is the story for you through 2019 where am i playing that in g10 right now because it's so difficult to get much lower on euro dollar seemingly even with weak european data yes but when you get paid two and a half percent in one year money you don't care if the currency stays the same you've made two and a half percent for sure so uh, you don't need volatility you don't need big movements you can get paid to own dollars that's my point and uh, you know if you look at the g10 across the space the cad uh, you know um, um, Aussie, Kiwi, they, none of them are looking great at the moment. And as I said, you, you get paid to own dollars and there's very little volatility and it's beautiful. Hey, David, it is beautiful and it's great to catch up with you this Monday morning. David Bloom, HSBC Global Head of FX Strategy. He joins us from London. How do you start Q2 at 8 a.m. Wall Street time? John, you've got to speak to somebody that really understands the coupon, and we could do that now. He does. And also you have to take a little bit of a risk, a risk that you might lose half the audience, but you make the other half of the audience really, really happy because we're going to speak to a man that has actually sat in the cop end at Anfield. He has. It's Bob Michael, JP Morgan Asset Management, Global CIO and Head of Global Fixed Income. Bob, as always, this is how we compensate you for coming on a programme with us. We talk a little bit about your beloved Liverpool. Massive win yesterday. I, I, John, I don't know what's more difficult, watching the Fed pivot and oscillate all over the place or waiting for Liverpool to score in the 90th minute. What an awesome game. What a finish too. And then a big game for City in the week against Cardiff, I think. So could be going back to second place again, Bob. My only regret is I didn't hear Tom refer to his beloved Tom. Uh, you know, well, the cop is okay. I mean, I really enjoyed it and all that. And afterward, I went to church and said thank you. But but, but can we just pause for a moment and say good morning, Boston 106.1 FM and the last place Boston Red Sox? I mean, season over, John? I, it could be. Already? They're going to get relegated. Oh, come on. If who's only you had relegation, Liverpool? wouldn't that be better? Liverpool, who's South? S-O-U, is that Southampton? You playing Southampton next, Bob? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, we should be on a roll. We're looking good. We're a team of destiny. This is the third 90th-plus-minute win this year. Wow. Let's get That's to the markets, destiny. Tom. Let's sure. get to the markets. Yeah, enough of no the Liverpool stuff. Means. John, jump in on the markets here. You're the real yield guy. Hey, Bob, big first quarter. Big question, whether you can continue to squeeze the juice from risk assets. You think you can. Walk us through it. Without question. And, and it starts with the Fed and the other central banks. They've taken all the pressure 
off of the markets. Instead of sitting here talking about a rate increase and more balance sheet runoff a couple weeks ago and will they go in June, they're done. I think they're actually done for the next two years. And if I'm wrong, it's it's yes, and I can take you through that. It's because they would cut rates, not raise them. So that that rate raising normalization regime is off the table. The other thing that's been very positive for the markets is the stimulus that China's been injecting into the system is now coming through, and you're seeing it in PMIs, and you're seeing it across the region. So central banks on hold with, I think, still very accommodative rates, and Chinese stimulus are enough to take the markets higher. And if you think about any sort of compromise between the U.S. and China on trade, then you could go a lot higher. So, Bob, which pockets of global fixed income would you be looking to get exposure to? I'm trying to understand if this Chinese story materializes in the way that the consensus view expects it to. Where does it unlock value when we've already seen a big run up at the start of 2019? Well, in a lot of places. I think you have to start in the emerging markets, particularly in emerging market currencies. They had a reasonably good fourth quarter, then have stalled. Uh, as everyone has has circled back to the dollar. So I think there's plenty more upside there. I think there's a lot of room for real yields to come down in local emerging market debt. And then you have to look at at corporate bonds, both investment grade and, and high yield in the U.S. and Europe. They also recovered a bit in the first quarter from the big sell-off in the fourth quarter, but they haven't gotten anywhere close to the tights they were at through 2018. So I think there's still more upside there. I, 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 the, the joy here is yield versus dividend growth. You're a bond guy, I understand it, but holistically across J.P. Morgan, is dividend growth a constructive alternative to low yield? It is, and I think you, you've gone through a period where companies were leveraging up their balance sheet and looking to grow dividends more aggressively. That will moderate so I think that will create more of a balance between equities and bonds going forward. Got to get your call on the Treasury market, Bob. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley cutting their forecast. HSBC out last week looking for lower yields, 2.1% on a U.S. 10-year year-end. Where are you on that big debate right now, Bob? I, I think that's about right. I, I would love for yields to go a bit higher in, in here. There's no doubt that there's been a big rally over the last 10 days we should drift a bit higher. Uh, it's all going to be technically driven. And, and when we feel that, that selling start to roll over, I'm back in all the way. And I think you're just going down to two, two and a quarter and sit there for a long time. Final question for you, Bob, and it's an important one. There's some people out there that say the Treasury market is telling you one thing and risk assets are telling you another. It's hard to reconcile the two things. Can that uncomfortable tension carry on for a whole lot longer than people think? I've heard that. I disagree with that entirely. I think you want central banks with very accommodative policy. They take the pressure off of everything. It keeps interest rates stable and it keeps credit spreads moving in and equities moving higher. So I I think until they start to see inflation that worries them, they're not going to tighten monetary policy. That's good for all asset classes. 
Hey, Bob, great to catch up with you. Really smart stuff, as always. Bob Michael there, JP Morgan Asset Management, Global CIO and Head of Global Fixed Income. One of the individuals, Tom, I have to say, that was fully behind the rally and risk assets through Q1. Let's go to Sarah House uh, right now, helping us, uh, Sarah House, on the American uh, economy. Sarah, what is your call on the U.S. economy, old news fourth quarter, present news first quarter, and into 2019? Well, I think like in many recent years, we're, we're off to a pretty dismal start for, for Q1. And I, I think um, the, the recent numbers we've had out of the consumer are, are a big reason why. But as we look out further into the year, I think that it's going to get a lot better from here. So I think we're, we're still right. suffering from some of that residual seasonality, particularly in the consumer sector. But there's a lot of reasons for, yeah. for growth to be bouncing back in, in the next couple months. You've got a wonderful note, end of the line and you say, no, things are going to get better, and yet PMIs and inflation's dampened in Europe and such. What is the catalyst to get better? Well, I think there's a, a couple of things we, we need to get through. So one is one is trade. And so our, our baseline assumption does assume that we will get some sort of deal. We've seen some of the, the fears. So that's the heart of the matter is Trump is the issue, and you're going to get a constructive solution for the president. I think that's part of it, but also I think a, a big chunk of it is is the consumer and that the fundamentals there remain pretty good. I think we've seen uh, some weakness over the past couple months. I think part of that might have to do with uh, with some seasonal effects. I think part of it's maybe just some exaggeration kind of coming down from the high of the, the tax um, tax related boost to, uh, to spending that we saw mid-year. And so I think this is in many ways a, a reversion to trend that's just been, been a, a bit overstated in terms of the, the weakness and kind of coming down in a, in a rather ungraceful manner. So, Sarah, that's what many people predicted coming into 2019, that we would return to trend growth, and some people would confuse that for a sinister turn in the U.S. economy. Is that what you think is happening? I think that's that's what's happening, given that, you know, it's it's rarely a, a graceful transition. And so we're certainly seeing that now with some of the consumer numbers. And then I think it's been amplified by the fact that we have seen some genuine weakness coming out of the manufacturing side of, of the economy and the industrial uh, picture. And so I think people are, are combining those factors and maybe getting a little bit more worried about the, the overall picture, given that we've had sort of this rough transition in, in the consumer side um, at the same time that there has been some, some weakness on, on that manufacturing kind of external facing parts of, of the economy. If that's your base case, Sarah, how does that shape your view for the Federal Reserve this year at a time when many people are starting to position for rate cuts from the Fed? Are you pushing back against that? Yeah, so I think a, a rate cut, you know, we don't think that that's going to happen this year. Um, our base case, we actually still have a rate hike in sometime in, in the second half. I think given some of the recent Fed rhetoric, that's getting a, a little bit tougher given that uh, we have seen a, a bit of a, of a change in, in what I think is the Fed's reaction function. But when we look at yeah. the, you know, the two main factors, you know, labor market's still doing, still doing very well. Um, inflation, while it's not, you know, bursting through 2%, it's, it's hanging in there. And so um, now that financial conditions have calmed down a bit, um, we think that there's still still potential for a further rate increase this year. Sarah, thank you so much. Sarah House with Wells Fargo here on Economic Data.
We welcome all of you worldwide to the conversation on the day on the bond market if you nailed the Fed call. There's no question Morgan Stanley absolutely nailed the Fed call. Ellen Zettner and her team doing that. And Matthew Hornback has to pick up the pieces as fixed income strategist uh, and global interest rate strategist, I should say, for uh, Morgan Stanley. What scares me, Matt, to death in your definitive research note is anytime I see the phrase win-win, all my radar goes up. It is win-win for the Fed. It's win-win for price up, yield down, and my radar's up. How afraid should I be right now? Well, Tom, um, thanks. I, I would say you should be somewhat concerned. I mean, the the radar should be should be fine tuned here. I think you know the the yield curve uh, did invert. Uh, you know, there's there's various parts of the yield curve you could look at, but of course, the the spread between the three month T bill yield and the ten year Treasury note yield did invert uh, a, a, about a week ago or so. And you know, history would suggest that at some point. Uh, in the uh, couple of years following, um, the economy goes into recession. Now, you know, I don't think that the yield curve can be blamed for all the world's uh, problems, but it's yeah. certainly something that we should pay attention to. <clears throat> you construct esoteric trades. I mean, that's what any major house does, and certainly the sophistication of the mathematics of James Gorman allows Morgan Stanley to do that. Forget about it. I'm a listener, and it's just a single coupon. Where do I capture coupon or am I forced to go to dividend growth right now? Well, look, I, I think when you're looking at the yield curve, one of the questions that people often ask is why would I buy a 30-year bond at, let's say, a 3% yield when I could buy a money market fund at, at a 3% yield, right? And so pe people ask this question, and I think the answer is, well, if the Fed at some point in the future ends up easing policy, cutting interest rates, uh, then unfortunately, your money market fund is is going to go down in yield, and so you you without price up exactly without price up, and so that's why somebody might choose a thirty year bond uh, to lock in that three percent yield for the next thirty years. Okay, now okay. that yeah, well, brilliantly explained. And if, if there's a maturity or the fancy word duration, what are you doing at your fixed income team in terms of the pulse of duration or maturity? Are you bringing it in? Are you stable? Are you lengthening out maturity? Yeah, so at the beginning of this year, we had been recommending yeah. that investors extend duration to try to capture some of the price appreciation we were expecting this year. And, and that move has happened by and large. It got down to our 10-year uh, target of 2.35%. That's where we had uh, our, our year-ahead forecast. And then we got down there very quickly. So we're not recommending investors extend duration at this particular point in time. But at the same time, we also lowered that a year ahead forecast to two and a quarter percent. So at some point, uh, maybe in the middle of this year, maybe towards the end of this year, we're going to very likely recommend investors get long duration again. At this point, though, uh, we're more we're more neutral on the bond market. Well, you're more neutral on the bond market, but I, I, I guess, you know, and of course, all our analysis and media, I'm as bad at this as anybody is, is looking at full faith and credit. What do you do in the corporate world? What, what do you do? Just somebody says, you know, like the old days, I want to buy quality corporates. Is that, is there a real risk to that here? Well, the, the first thing I'd say is um, if you're going to allocate money into corporate debt, we would certainly suggest going up in quality. So investment grade over high yield for certain. 
Um, it's challenging because spreads on corporate debt are quite tight. And our, our credit strategist, Adam Richmond, has been recommending recently that investors try to peel back from their credit allocation, just given how tight spreads are and given how late cycle uh, we think the economy yeah. is. Yeah, but we're this, – this, and I mentioned Bill Gross earlier, folks, in this great phrase, financial repression. Matt Hornback, you're in the trenches living this. Do you just assume a financial pre- repression of low nominal yields and critically low real yields as well? I, th- I think ultimately, Tom, it comes down to aggregate demand versus aggregate supply. This is macroeconomics 101, back to college. And I'd say, you know, the, the economy, you can just look at the inflation rate as evidence of this. The economy uh, has a certain level of aggregate demand that is okay, right? We do have a positive inflation rate, but it's not yeah. sufficient to boost inflation uh, above the Fed's 2% goal. We can barely even get to the Fed's 2% goal. That's that's a problem. Right. One more question, Matt Hornbeck. Link in your bond work with Ellen Zettner's economic work. Is it even possible you two are on the same page? <laughs> of, co- of course it is. I think, you know, the what, what I ultimately am trying to un- uh, do in my interest rate forecasting is understand the risks around Ellen's, Ellen's call for the economy. Because uh, markets, you know, markets can can price in not only the base case, markets can price in the risk scenarios. So, yeah, I'd say the risk scenario to our base case is that the economy tails off a little bit faster than, uh, than we're expecting. Ellen, by the way, is below consensus yeah. on the U.S. economy this year. So certainly there are downside risks. Well, she's been way out front on that. Matt Hornbach, thank you so much. With Morgan Stanley uh, on uh, the challenges in the fixed income uh, market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.